Welcome to Food Connection, the podcast where we talk about all things food and cooking and chat with our favorite Phoenix chefs. I am Pascal Dionneau, the co-host with Chef Lou Swartz and Danielle Sanders. I was reading about how Chef Massimo Batura of Asteria Francescana, which was just named Pellegrino's number one best restaurant in the world, was down in Rio for the Olympics, and he was working with a few other local chefs as well as some other Michelin chefs from all over to use the leftover food from the Olympic Village to feed the Rio locals that are living in slums and just trying to reduce food waste. Also, there hasn't been a lot of details released yet, but supposedly Massimo's in the works with Robert De Niro, who's partners of a few restaurants in New York, most notably Nobu, but I believe he owns a couple others as well. But supposedly De Niro and Massimo are working together to start a soup kitchen in New York utilizing leftover food from his restaurants. So I thought that food waste might be an interesting topic to talk about today. Sure, as a matter of fact, we know that we we waste worldwide 1.3 billion tons of food every year, so it would not be a bad idea to recycle some of it. We did a little research and found out that the majority of food is wasted actually by individuals in homes, but about a quarter of uh, food waste comes from uh, supermarkets. France has become the world's first country to ban supermarket waste and compel large retailers to donate the unsold food. If they have 3,000 square feet or more, they have to weekly donate their food to a charity of their uh, choice, which I think is a good idea. I did see that, and uh, food waste in local uh, terms, I've been working with farms around the, the Phoenix area, and uh, just in the month of May alone, we had uh, one week where we tried to donate food to uh, one of the local food banks. And uh, it was a substantial amount just from one farm. It was uh, 20 tons of, uh, of food that went to waste. And wow. uh, yeah, so do the math, that's 40,000 pounds of food that went to waste instead of going into um, the local food banks uh, simply because. A lot of the food banks are strained as far as manpower uh, to pick food up and having trucks available to actually pick up the food. Uh, also, it's another you know, problem that local uh, food banks have an issue with storage of the food. Uh, you know, it's much easier to store canned food versus uh, fresh vegetables, and, and it makes sense. I mean, it, you know, canned vegetables will last longer. Uh, unfortunately, you do lose a lot of the nutritional value that's uh, involved with the fresh produce. And 20 tons of food that was basically turned into compost and uh, animal feed instead of being sold at the uh, farmer's markets, being sold to the grocery stores, and being sold to the restaurants like they typically do, it just went to waste. And it's, it's, a, it's a downright shame that you know something like that happens. And we understand that you know, it's difficult for these places that come and pick it up but well you know. yeah I mean if a, if a caterer uh, finishes at 11 o'clock at night and has uh, let's say 300 dinners left over or whatever 
It is, I mean, granted they may want to pack it up, take it back to their facility and put it in the fridge, but same day, the next day, the caterer may have other things to do than putting that food in a truck and ship it down to food banks. And food banks also may not have the facility or the trucks to come pick it up. And uh, and leftover food cannot waste too long either, so it has to be... uh, Either disposed or, or done something, do something with it very quickly. Exactly, and then uh, there's a company in Phoenix that does that. They uh, it's called Waste Not, and they have uh, freezer trucks that usually come and pick up if you know that you're going to have a, a catering gig where you know you'll have leftovers. And I've worked at a lot of the large resorts, and most of the food just gets you know heaved into the trash, either recycled, uh, whatever can be used for employee meal for the next day, or the majority of it into the garbage and it's a, it's a shame that you know we can't get in touch with them to come and pick up the food i've seen it done at a couple of parties but i mean that's just so few and far between right. and with catering companies like you said you know people are in a hurry they're they want to get the hell out of there right. and, and go home they got lives they want to go and do whatever uh, they just don't necessarily take the time to, to wrap it to properly store the food till it's uh, able to be picked up either that night or the, or the next right. day. And the kiddo may not want to spend an extra 200 bucks or so to pack right. up the stuff, ship it, and uh, all that stuff. I mean, it's understandable. Right. It comes out of their pocket, more right. or less. So, yeah, the employee... Uh, labor comes out of their pocket and they don't benefit from it. Interestingly enough actually about the French thing um, I remember years ago a, uh, a friend of mine who went to uh, we went to hotel school together uh, a while back and he was visiting me about five years ago and he was telling me that uh, France the uh, supermarkets in France and restaurants used to douse the food with bleach when they put it in dumpster uh, to prevent uh, dumpster divers or uh, whoever goes in uh, in the looking for lunch to prevent them from getting sick. And this is actually what triggered that law to uh, to do that food waste law because I think homeless and uh, uh, and people that uh, that would raid the dumpster were getting way more sick <laughs> than they would have with bad food actually. That happens in a, in a lot of industries. I worked years ago at a department store and we used to sell books and anything that left over that weren't selling on the bookshelves they would literally rip the books apart and throw them away instead of giving books away to you know uh, you know the senior centers and yeah exactly so Lou is organizing a charitable 5k you can walk run or do it on your own and do a virtual run and donate and do you want to tell us a little bit more about that sure it's called piece of the pie 5k and it's on October 2nd of this year and we're going to start it off at uh, Kiwanis Park down in Tempe. And you can sign up online and basically pay your fee. Uh, right now it's uh, $35 per person. What it includes is you know, your entrance into the race. At the finish line, you'll get a medal. You'll receive a T-shirt with our logo on it. And you'll also get a $5 voucher for food truck competition that we're having so you can choose whichever food truck you want to get food from the winner of the food truck combination gets a you know wonderful reward more or less a pat on the back from me and uh, whatever money that we split up between them and of course at the finish line you'll get your photo taken with me or another judge and you'll receive a pie in the face wow (laughs) yes so that's that's just worth the 35 bucks exactly exactly so if you're on 
if you're coming just for the medal or the T-shirt or a brand new Facebook, yeah, brand new Facebook photo, it's it's perfect. Who throws the pie? Do you need people to do that? Yes, we do, uh, right. and I'm going to be one of the judges. We're going to have a few other people to uh, to volunteer for that. And chef, if you're more than, uh, I can you know, dress as a clown, and uh... you can totally do that. You can totally do that. Um, and but at the end of the uh, at the end of the race, when it's all over, we will also be selling a few pies to. Make a little extra money, so if you want to pie the referee that hits you, or the clown in your case, you know. Is it real uh, whipped cream, or you use shaving cream like at the circus? It's the frozen... Cool Whip. Cool Whip. Yeah. Well, we don't want to use Cool oh. Whip, because that doesn't... That's greasy, yeah? Well, it's all greasy, man. Yeah. We're all greasy anyway, so... Um, yeah, it's just going to be... It'll be fun. There'll be a little cleanup station, so we'll give the towels and, the, you know, little moist towelettes to, to kind of clean up a little bit, but... You go home a little greasy, a little stinky, but that's okay. You're going to shower anyway because it's beginning of October. It's going to be Except hot Except for anyway. the blueberry pie that's stained forever. Oh, yeah. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. We all look like Smurfs then. <laughs> um, but it's, like I said, it's going to go all the proceeds uh, as far as um, uh, anything that we get as far as, uh, you know, on the plus side of, the, of our uh, spending uh, will go to purchase stuff for the people in need. So we're going to buy bags of quinoa, bags of brown rice, those sort of things that are going to be more staples in the in healthier eating. Uh, the key to the whole nonprofit that I'm starting up is to give uh, people who are in need a little bit better of a healthier option as far as food is concerned. So the quinoa versus, you know, the blue mac and cheese box from Kraft or whatever. Uh, huge difference in, in nutritional value. You much rather raise your kid on eating something good than eating garbage, you know, processed uh, sugary stuff. So stay away from that. Eat the healthier foods, and that's what we're really trying to promote here. And that's what we're trying to raise the money for is to actually give people who can't necessarily afford the fresh fruits and vegetables and and those sort of things a healthier uh, way to raise themselves and to raise their kids and and to teach them right and and basically. Feed them right and stay away from uh, the whole diabetic, uh, you know, intake that the, this country is based upon. That's great. I know that Phoenix is one of the biggest food deserts, they call it, where people can't get to a supermarket to get fresh food by walking. So if you don't have a car, you have to take a bus or a cab, which makes things really difficult. So I know it's really nice for parents or families to be able to pick up non-perishable food like quinoa and stuff that they can take home and cook for their families. Uh, we need also maybe to educate people about all this. I mean, uh, it just just reminds me of a story a while ago. I don't know. You you know uh, Lois and Ellen Frank. No? She's a... Um, She's in Santa Fe. She has a school in Santa Fe. And she's a Native American. Well, she's part Native American. And uh, she's actually, I think, the only woman with a PhD in nutrition uh, in food or Native American food in the country. And she was telling me that she did a lot of... uh, She helped uh, Native American on the reservation eat better. And she was telling me a story about uh, visiting a little old lady on the reservation and looking in the cupboard, all the community, uh, what do you call them, the commodity food, the food that are donated by the government, you know, in uh, no label, it just says corn or it says spam or it says uh, whatever on the, on the label. And she looked in the, in the closet and there was tons of cans of uh, salmon and tuna. And uh, she said, well, what happened to the salmon and the tuna? She said, oh, well, I don't eat this uh, because we're from the desert, we don't eat fish and stuff. 
So she said, well, I'm going to show you how to do a nice tuna casserole or a sandwich or things like it. And finally, the lady admitted and she says, well, then what's the cat going to eat? Wow. <laughs> so the problem is the cat was getting all the food and the salmon and the tuna and they while they eating they eating the sugar, the Crisco and the, and the lard. Yes, it's uh, it's so I think there's a lot of education also to be done. I mean, granted, cooking a cup of quinoa is not too complicated. I mean, if people can cook a puff, cup of rice, they can do it. But uh, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, a lot of people Lou. don't want to cook yeah, a cup exactly, of rice, though. That's exactly yeah, true. Yeah. They use the uh, the minute rice, uh, yeah. you know, or the boil in the bag rice. Right, which is depleted of everything. Exactly. Um, and another aspect of the the whole nonprofit is to also to do YouTube videos, uh, you know, with local chefs, Chef Pascal, myself. Uh, and other chefs around here and teaching those sort of things. So we're going to actually be able to set up a, a program where people can tune in so when they get their fresh uh, vegetables and, and quinoa and whatever else it is from uh, the food bank, they can go home and uh, the week of what they have in their basket will be listed as far as how to prepare the vegetables, whether it's zucchini or squash, you know, what yeah, spaghetti great. squash or whatever it might be, and how to actually make a more nutritional uh, dinner for their family. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of uh, things tied into there that you know we're all going to kind of work together and, and be one giant community working together. And that's kind of where the whole piece of the pie is. Everybody has oh, their awesome. own, right. everybody has their own little piece that they're going to add to uh, to making it a whole. And uh, that's kind of the way we got to be. It's where they say you know raising a was it raise a village or raise a you know. Takes a- Takes a village, raises an idiot. Yeah, so um, takes an idiot to write a book. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 that's not exactly. But uh, it's more or less. I mean, it's all about us, kind of watching out for our, you know each other and and taking care of each other and and you know working together as one big giant unit and and just you know it's all about watching each other. You know, nobody should have to suffer. Nobody should have to uh, need in, in this country and. Um, you know, we got to take care of each other. It's plain and simple as that. Nice. That reminded me too when you were talking about the blue box mac and cheese. Yeah. Did you see though at least that Kraft took out food dye in I, their I, mac and cheese, and I they're using turmeric? I now? didn't see that. Yeah. I saw I saw their ad for the first time, and I jumped. Uh, uh, when uh, you see the guy who says, uh, since January, we've removed the food coloring, we've removed the artificial flavor, we've removed the fake cheese uh, and everything, and you haven't noticed. And I was like, well, that means that you haven't improved your product that exactly. much, I guess. Exactly. I actually bought a box of it. It's better? It's, it's the same thing? It's, gro- it's gross. Really? It's gross. I don't think it. I think the artificial stuff might have tasted better. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my goodness! All right. The the French winemakers are pissed at the government. Uh, Government imports a lot of um, foreign wine, particularly from Spain. And uh, a few months back, they dumped the equivalent of ninety thousand bottles of red and white wine down the drain in protest. And apparently, recently, in a south um, in the town in the south of France, in the Languedoc-Roussillon region. They dumped uh, what they call wine terrorists. They uh, grabbed a whole bunch of wine that was uh, uh, supposedly leave the country. I'm not quite sure what they were going to do with which wine they grabbed. But anyway, they dumped the wine in the streets. And uh, the wine went everywhere. It took the firefighters some time to pump everything. And uh, and I guess there was a lot of drunk rats and a lot of of problems in the sewers. And you said that's 
common in France? Or? Yes, I said I, I, I um, in uh, in France usually when the farmers are uh, pissed off at the government for whatever reason, and it usually has to do with the Euro European Community or the uh, you know the trade agreement that they have with other countries, they come and they dump stuff in front of either the Elysee Palace, the the the, the president's uh, house, or in front of the assembly. And I remember when you, uh, it must have been in the early 70s or late 60s actually, I was driving uh, uh, in Paris with my moped coming back from school and uh, there was a big uh, commotion and I went to look at it and there was tons and tons of artichoke in the middle of the street. And the police was just waiting there while the Parisians were uh, uh, shopping and uh, picking up all those artichokes. The uh, artichoke producer from Brittany in France were all pissed and uh, came and drank and dumped uh, 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 hundreds of uh, tons of artichoke in the street. So that's how they protest in France, which is not a bad way, actually. No. I asked our Facebook followers if they had any questions they wanted to ask a chef. So we have a couple questions today. Steven wants to know, what are the best sauces to use with demi-glace? Well... Demi-glace is not a cheap sauce to make, so first of all, you would, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't put demi-glace on a chicken or uh, or any of this stuff. Uh, it would be, uh, you know, like putting truffle on a bologna sandwich. It doesn't make much sense. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I mean, demi-glace, obviously, you can use it with a plain, uh, with a steak or with a duck breast or whatever, but... Uh, countless uh, a, a number of sauces that you can make from demi-glace and uh, uh, I, I just can't think of uh, all the wine sauces using red, white, port, uh, Madeira, Marsala, Sherry, all of those you can make all kinds of uh, uh, sauces. Can you explain what demi-glace is to someone that might not know? Demi-glace is a, a veal stock, a brown veal stock, we brown the buns, we brown the vegetables and uh, put a little tomato product in it and uh, uh, cover it with water and cook it for 10-12 hours and then uh, strain it and then you reduce this to perfection which is about half or so and uh, it makes a sauce. When cold the sauce is like a hockey puck, I mean it's like gelatinous and, uh, and hard and uh, it makes absolutely wonderful sauces. Lou, what's, yes. what's your favorite sauce to make with dummy? Uh, it all depends, but, uh, I mean, one of the easiest sauces, I mean, you're just going to, you know, if you're searing uh, something in a pan, you know, you deglaze your pan with a nice uh, red wine or whatever, reduce that down, and then, uh, you know, just if you wanted to make an au poivre sauce, you know, so nice, uh, you know, green peppercorns in, the, in your sauce with the, with the demi-glace and, you know, a touch of uh, Dijon mustard in there, finish it with a pat of butter and just call it a wonderful sauce, put that with... Uh, you know, right over your steak, you can actually serve that with a nice piece of uh, ahi tuna to kind of give it a nice uh, bite as well. I mean, it's it's very versatile sauce. Um, so, I mean, something along those lines would be fantastic. Um, it really all depends on what you're what you're serving it with, too. So, I used to cook a uh, swordfish when I did swordfish. I haven't cooked swordfish in about twenty years because I think it's uh, it's uh, the way they fish they, they catch swordfish is scandalous. Those long lines, but anyway, uh, I used to cook swordfish with a uh, green uh, green peppercorn sauce, exactly like a piece of meat. You know, the shallots, the green peppercorn, the cognac, the demi glace, and a splash of cream. Uh, yeah, actually, you can. Uh, I mean, all kinds of demi glace is uh, it's easy. It's really easy to make a good sauce with demi-glace. When you have a good demi-glace, it's just a little shallot, a little, uh, little wine, uh, and a few herbs, and you got it. It's just hard for people to get access to good demi. Usually. You can't. No, you can't. Uh, AJ here sells something for like an ounce and a half. 
an ounce and a half of demi glace for six bucks. And, uh, and if you read the ingredient, it's got two, uh, two, uh, one s salt in it and two starch of some kind. But the good thing here at school, uh, if you're a student and you come here, I'll, uh, you're hooked up and then uh, you can buy a, a demi-glace for the rest of your life here. Well, uh, I'll give demi-glace or I'll sell demi-glace at my cost to our students. I know we even had that Patricia from the practical fly here just to get demi. That's right. That's right. Okay, Sharon wants to know, what are some of your favorite preparations for raw vegetables as an accompaniment to a gourmet meal? Gourmet meal, raw vegetable? <laughs> Doesn't happen. No. No. You take a bottle of uh, don't don't cheat. Uh, use the Hidden Valley Ranch, and uh, you know, uh, put it right there. Make your a nice, best plastic cup. Yes, a nice crudite platter. You know, uh, I mean, raw vegetables. I mean. Okay, well, yeah. what's your favorite summer vegetable to cook with, and what's your favorite way to prepare it? Good question. I don't have uh, one, actually. The, all the local uh, stuff around here, I mean, you got your your, yeah, your squash and uh, tomatoes and, and, and whatever is growing around here locally. I mean, if you've got the ability to do everything on the grill, why not? That's the best way to do it out here. Uh, why heat up your kitchen while you can go outside, put your husband out there and let him sweat and, you know, put him in front of the grill. You know, just marinate your vegetables, a little uh, extra virgin olive oil, some uh, some spices inside of there, and uh, season it up, and then uh, just grill it up, you know, get it all nice, get a nice little grill mark on it and serve it that way. That's uh, super healthy, nutritious. Um, you know, if you're you got the opportunity put a cast iron skillet onto there kind of roast some garlic at the same time on the top burner kind of you know low and slow uh with you know olive oil and whatever else in there and just kind of toss it all together maybe with the the chopped up uh squash in there or some grilled uh, tomato if you wanted to put something in there or some type of uh you know tomato kind of uh, thing to it as well um and you know do it that way i mean just cook healthy cook easy and uh don't heat up your house it's as simple as that winter time i mean you get your your heavy kind of squash your spaghetti squash and you know your root vegetables um you know roasting those i mean you could even do those on the grill and aluminum foil some fresh uh, olive oil and, and and garlic in there and and just kind of roast it low and slow that way as well so let your husband do a lot of the cooking outside I like that answer. I know, I know. It's the best way to do it. We will end with a few quick fire questions. So I already asked these questions to Jabari and Corey from Atlas that I interviewed earlier this week. You can see your thoughts. Best hangover food. <laughs> hangover food? Yeah. I don't know. Usually the best hangover food is, uh, is another drink, yeah. <laughs> actually. There was, I remember, doing a, uh, when I was in hotel school in, uh, in Germany, doing a, taking a bartending class. And uh, I remember there was this, a drink called Prairie Oyster, oh. which is, have you ever heard of it? Anything prairie just brings up bad memories. So. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, and it was, fires. it was. I think it was like a fresh oysters with a shot of, um, of cognac or something like this. And, uh, and th again, it's the you know the whole idea is just uh, get another buzz so to stop the shake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, mean, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know about uh, uh, hangover food. Actually, the best thing for a hangover is uh, uh, oxygen, pure oxygen. 
If you have a mask, a bottle of oxygen, just breathe oxygen for five minutes and uh, that's gonna clear your head up. <laughs> Pro tip, okay. Best meal in Phoenix for under $10. Oh, a whole meal? Yeah. <laughs> oh, Lord. You need Rachel Ray to answer this question, don't you? I don't know. Oh, she does it for $40 under there. But anybody can do that. Um, she uh, $40 a day. Yeah, I know. Anybody can do that. So, way to make a living off of that. I would say hit any taco shop that's, uh, you know, decent quality Probably. tacos. Yeah. Was it Tacos uh, Chiwas? That's what, that's what both... Yeah. And yeah, said, yeah, yeah. Tacos, you, you know anything and and there's your good hangover food too so you could tie that question into question number one as well i mean what what's going to help with your uh, with your hangover and stuff like that tacos okay i'm from philly cheesesteak works too so butter or olive oil both you have to pick one <laughs> no i don't <laughs> <laughs> you didn't give me that as a yeah as a stipulation well, yeah well i mean I, when i make certain things you know it's like when i make a risotto or something like that i throw in uh, the uh, the olive oil and i throw in a chunk of butter and i you know i sweat my uh, my onion and stuff down in there and that way and i throw in the you know the arborio rice and cook it all down and and more butter at the end yeah exactly you're right. exactly so no <laughs> cake or yeast donuts yeast donuts um pie <laughs> so i said cake donuts are always dry yeah 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 yeah, yeah. And they feel like they've been there for like five days. Or they can't store for five days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then the, the yeast donut, they go back quickly. and uh, So you can't serve them. Yeah, donut. Most overrated and underrated ingredient? White truffle oil for overrated, underrated ingredient? Ugh. Leeks. Uh, yeah, you can go something as simple as that. Leeks, fennel. I mean, a whole bunch of vegetables that you find in most supermarkets today that... Uh, 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 not too long ago, actually, I was picking up some leeks at a supermarket, and a little lady was following me. She, she, she stayed with me, and finally, she cornered me somewhere and just pointed the leeks in my basket and said, "What do you do with those?" And uh, I mean, she was just astonishing, astonished that to see somebody buying those things. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I was just I was thinking vegetables, but uh, there's a. What's your most overrated ingredient? Overrated. Mm-hmm. Uh, microgreens. And if I see another microgreens on top of the food in a restaurant, I'll, uh, I'll have a fit. And uh, although microgreens, if you actually pick the right microgreen for the food, you know what I mean? Put some corn shoot on a, uh, on a corn soup or whatever, but not systematically anything out of the box just because it's cute and small. Baby or villa on every little thing. How do you make your Instagram photos look good? How do I make my I make sure that I'm not in them. Uh, that's the best way to do it. <laughs> One last question. What's a word of advice for someone learning how to cook? Keep the top on the blender. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen that go wrong a lot of times here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, God, word of advice for home cooks? Yeah, home cooks. Learn from people that know how to cook. Don't watch the stuff that's on TV. You're not going to learn anything. All you're going to learn is how to buy their products. So... You know, learn by uh, learn by watching your mother. Learn by watching your grandmother. Learn by people like that. Don't watch those. Uh, I was gonna say ass clowns, but I won't say ass clowns. Uh, don't learn by watching those people on TV. You know, they're they're out to sell their products. They're not really out to teach. They're out to sell products. They're out to sell their recipe books. So learn actually from you know family. Learn from uh, friends. Learn from uh, if you know somebody that's in the business. Learn from them. That's the best way to do it. Come to classic cooking. And uh, Classic Cooking Academy in Scottsdale. And uh, we will teach you how to become a badass cook 
where you actually will make the onions cry. There you go. I was going to say, that sounds like saying not to watch the food shows to learn to cook. That reminds me of an unnamed cooking school that also sells products that I would recommend not taking cooking classes there because you'll just learn how to buy their products. Good one. Are they out of business though? No, not Sri Oh, Sri Oh, that table. Yes, that place. Yeah, if you want to buy a spatula for forty dollars, go right ahead. Yeah, feel free. But uh, yeah, yeah. Now, if you want to learn how to cook, go to a reputable cooking school and find out who teaches. I mean, if it's uh, you know, again, if it's somebody who's going to tell you, okay, so take the little spatula that's on your right, uh, put the butter in your pot, add the onion, stir for five minutes. Everybody's there. Okay, now we add the carrot. And then we stir for, you know, the Lanona thing. You're going to be, you know, it just doesn't work. You might as well stay home, look at YouTube, and, uh, and uh, do the same thing and end up calling a, order a pizza at the end because it doesn't work. That brings me to a bonus quick-fire question. Oh. Uh, formal education or experience? It doesn't matter to me. When I hire a cook, usually it's like, can you start tomorrow at 8? And uh, the guy says, yes. Uh, I told him, usually by noon, I will know whether you're going to stay in my kitchen or not. And uh, and usually, and the old classic thing, I always say, you know, you, you make, make a new cook to make an omelette. That's what I've always done. At one point, to get the guy and say, make an omelette for the bartender. He, uh, he's going to be busy, so he needs to eat real quick. And uh, you can't make an omelette. It doesn't matter whether you pay $50,000 to go to school uh, or you haven't paid anything. If you want to be a cook and you can't make an omelette, you're not in. Now, if you want to come with no attitude and say, I want to learn everything from you, chef, and uh, I don't know how to make an omelette, that's fine. You know, maybe, uh, maybe there's room for you. But, uh, and maybe things will change with actually the, that could be the, uh, the discussion for an, an, another podcast, uh, Culinary in the, uh, Education in America. Things are changing. Exactly. Um, and my uh, two cents on that is, uh, I think if you have the passion, it doesn't matter whether or not you have training or not. Uh, you'll make it happen. That's right. um, basically, you know, I've seen people that come in that have a you know awesome resume, and then they just can't cook. Um, but somebody who trained and, and learned underneath the tutelage of somebody that actually knows what they're doing and and, and taught them right, uh, they don't need the formal training. It looks good on paper, but I don't care about what looks good on paper because that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, a resume, like I always say, is nothing but what you did yesterday. It's what you can do today. And uh, if you can't cook, then it just shows immediately. And uh, I'd rather take somebody with passion and uh, ability versus somebody with, uh, you know, one of those high fluting degrees and pimping it around and saying, look what I did. I don't care. Uh, give me somebody that uh, wants to actually learn how to cook and, and have a passion to do it. So That's right. Okay, so I think that wraps things up. You can find Pascal at Classic Cooking Academy in Scottsdale. And you can find Lou on his Loop de Lou page on Facebook. And also, what's the, do you know the website for your 5K? Uh, I we'll do not know. It. I do not know. But, yeah, you can find uh, the Piece of the Pie 5K on, uh, on Facebook. And uh, it'll take you right to the link to purchase tickets for it. Okay. Thanks, guys. So tonight I'm joined by Chef Corey Uphold. Is that, am I pronouncing your name yep. right? Corey okay. Uppold, yeah. And Jabari Corbin from Atlas Bistro. 
and we are just going to chat a little bit about Atlas and the Phoenix food scene and their experience. So how are you guys? Good. Doing well, thank you. Good. How long have you two been working at Atlas? I have been there since January. Okay. And I've been there since uh, October of 2014. And then, Corey, you're the executive chef Correct. there. Correct. And then, Jabari, what do you do there? I do pastry and help on the line. Oh, a little so. bit of everything. And Atlas is closed right now for yep. summer hiatus? Currently closed because of the due to the weather and everything. And for independent restaurants, usually shut down because of, you know, just... No one wants to go out to eat when it's 123 degrees out. Right. So we shut down for just, you know, beginning of uh, July, or basically through July, and then we reopened back up in mid-August. What can we look forward to seeing at Atlas as well? Uh, Atlas is still, you know, definitely, you know, just, um, I guess you'd just say micro-seasonal. I mean, we changed the menu, you know, we try not to have one item on the menu longer than two weeks. Okay. Um, it just kind of keeps us on our toes, keeps everything for... You know the creative process going to keep everything fresh. Um, we definitely try to, you know, try to take in everything that's local as far as produce. Um, <clears throat> a lot of our uh, our seafood, though, we got a new uh, seafood purveyor, uh, uh, Chula Seafood, which is amazing. So we're getting really great quality of fish. I saw some of the pictures on Instagram. Yeah, just a yeah. great company, and they're they're up and coming now, and um, you know, still small, which is benefits to us. It yeah. benefits us. Yeah. But the quality product is just. Words can't even describe it. Yeah, it's any of the places I've worked here, definitely. Yeah, it's really hard to find good seafood out here. So. Yep, yep. And so with the season, I mean, we're just going to con- uh, still continue. It's a you know prefix menu, um, th- set three courses. Uh, there's also you know interjectory courses such as AMUs and you know a couple AMUs here and there. Um, but it's you know a choice of four different things in each category: a first course, second course, third course, and then uh, dessert is just an add-on. Okay. And I always hear chefs complain that the crowd in Phoenix doesn't, they are very meat and potatoes and they don't, you know, aren't very experimental. Do you find that the your guests get what you're doing? Do they embrace it? or? I, w- I would say they embrace it pretty well. Um, I, I can see where you can get that idea from about the, the Phoenix food crowd because it can be very... Um, sporadic in terms of what they want from food, and if they if it's not always what they expect from a preconceived notion, they kind of mm-hmm. treat it without it without being being open minded about it, you know. Right. And I, it's something for me that I would even say I was a little bit like that when I first moved here because growing up on a small island, you know, I wasn't exposed to sushi and you know a lot of different other types of food from different cultures like authentic Japanese food, right. Asian food, Korean. So when I first came here, I I, I would what is this? You know, like you want to eat raw fish. Yeah. <laughs> no, but now, like I've been exposed to it, I understand what it can be. Um, it's, it's. I think it's all delicious, and I'm always willing to try something, even if I don't like it. I try it objectively, and then I'll say, well, you know what? This is not my thing. Like chef loves foie, but he tries to get me to try it in many different ways, and I'm always like, chef, I've tried it multiple times. Same. It's not gonna work. It is delicious. Yeah. You grew up on Barbados. Yeah, Barbados? Barbados. Okay. Yeah. How often do you go back there? Um. Well, right now I've seen be going once a year, which for a while I had I was not That's going for nice. a while. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm about to go on Tuesday. Yeah. Oh. Okay. Yeah. 
So do you get a lot of inspiration from there? Or um, I would say a lot of my savory cooking is very much rooted in the stuff that I grew up around. And then pastry is probably a lot more open and diverse from what I've learned from all the different chefs and places I've worked at here in the Valley. Chef, what about you? Where do you get influence from? Uh, it's kind of hard to say, actually. Because I actually, I moved while well, I'm a farm boy, so I grew up with, you know, you know, vegetables from our garden to, like, you know, eating our own, I'm a dairy farm boy. So, you know, having our own butter to, you know, we would have our own cattle for meat and proteins. And, you know, until I moved out here when, in 98, you know, I didn't really even know, you know, I've never even bought a piece of meat from a grocery store <laughs> so it was just kind of a you know a crazy thing which i mean that i would say definitely influenced how i cook where you know just you know support local farmers and everything like that but i just didn't know, really know any different growing up until i moved out here right and um as far as like the food scene though i mean i think it's you know definitely up and coming here um it's not as good i mean as like in la or chicago and you know and i don't think it will, will ever get there but i think you know with you know it's, it's people are becoming more educated on what food yeah. can be and i think they're you know with education becomes you know comfort mm-hmm. you know you i think they're becoming more comfortable with you know just new techniques different you know ingredients to everything like that so i think one day you know it's going to be better but i think we're starting to you know blossom a little bit and jabari actually was my classmate at cordon bleu yeah. and then chefo was one of my instructors yep. and then you're still teaching yep. there correct yep yeah, I'm just, uh, you know, filling status, and I mean, I just enjoy teaching. Also, you know, with working in the restaurant, it also gives me, like, first dibs on potential people to work in the restaurant oh. as well. So it's just a good way to build connection, but I mean, I just personally, I enjoy teaching, so I just continue to do so. Just do it in the mornings and go right to the restaurant right afterwards. Good. So. Well, we hope to have you come here to do a class. Oh, for sure. Awesome. For sure, love you. And you too, Jabari. Yeah. I, I, I love teaching as well, you know. Especially from being in culinary school, I don't know if you remember, but everyone used to be always asking me questions about like homework or or something, and I didn't, I didn't I mind don't it. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, no, I don't mind it. Like I always, I always liked helping people because you know, like if you have something that can help someone get through the day easier, then why not? Absolutely. Extend the olive branch. Yeah. Exactly. And you pass it along in your restaurant to kind of teaching the. Yeah, I mean, I think that actually the restaurant kind of helped me more into, like, teaching in culinary school. You know, it's just, you know, you can't always follow the curriculum of a book because that book might have been written 20 years ago. You know, stuff definitely changes, you know, cuisine, food, it changes. So just kind of adapting, you know, the way you work in a kitchen and then, you know, kind of tying that into, you know, the way you teach in a school. Yeah. And just like in a kitchen, there are multiple personalities, just like they're in a classroom. Right. Mm-hmm. And everyone learns differently, everyone interacts differently. So it's definitely like a, a good environment to learn and get a good, a good grasp of how to handle different people in different situations and different methods of teaching. And I definitely enjoy that part of it, working in the industry, for sure. And how do you guys feel... I'd be interested to hear your take, like the Cordon Bleu closing, and these, I know a lot of the bigger schools are closing because kids that take out these huge loans, and then I think a lot of them might not research and kind of expect to just go into the kitchen and be an executive chef and make a ton of money and not realize that you start out as a line cook and you're you making $9 an hour. And yeah. 
how do you feel about the current culinary education system? Well, I mean, it's definitely unfortunate, especially with, you know, the Cordon Bleu shutting its doors. Um, and classes, you know, basically are going to be taught out by the end of, uh, I believe, September 2017. But I think a lot of the students, what they fail to realize is that's just in every field. It doesn't matter if it's culinary or not. Yeah. It's obviously you're going to start at the bottom. Right. You know, and like a culinary degree, like any other degree, is just kind of like a license to drive. You know, it's kind of like how far that individual takes it is, is how far they're going to get. Um, so it's not necessarily just the degree. I mean, it has to be, it's hugely, it's 99% on the person and just 1% on the degree itself, right. I, I believe. So to them, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's bad to be in their shoes, but at the same time, it's it's based on the motivation of the individual itself. Um, I liked the program when I went to the Corner Blue. I really did. I thought it was very educational, very informational. Um, it was expensive, but... I mean, I, I think most people that put some thought into it probably realized you weren't going to go to school and yeah. be mm-hmm. running a restaurant. Exactly. But yeah. I, w- I will say, I like, know. I know it, it started to change after I left. I know a lot like took away a lot of the classes and stuff like went online and then they weren't cooking every day and mm-hmm. I think the, the way it was before where we were cooking almost every day once we got past like the first foundations classes and stuff was 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 a good fit because it was realistic of what you were going to be doing in the industry I think the unfortunate part about it was the way they were recruiting students where mm-hmm. I think there was a little bit of you know misleading yeah. in the presentation of the program and mm-hmm. as you said what you would do afterwards so even if people came out with the, you know, the perception that, you know, I'm going to be a chef or whatever the case may be, you know, it was like they weren't necessarily aware of the financial commitment they were taking right. to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, like you said, I think that's probably a lot of schools. And yeah, I think some of the, like the on Blue and some of the art schools just got hit with it a little bit harder. For sure. Yeah. Because that's the problem with for-profit schools, you know, a lot of it falls on the student, whereas other programs can be somewhat subsidized by, you know, federal loans and grants, whereas, you know, nationally accredited schools have a better way of dealing with that kind of financial aid for mm-hmm. students than for-profit schools. Right. But, I mean, I, I really enjoy the program, too. Uh, I do, I too. I feel like I got a lot out of it, um, Pascal likes to bad mouth sometimes, <laughs> but I do feel like I got a lot of it. But since I haven't worked in the kitchen since I went to school, I have also lost a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, the difficult part about going to culinary school was I encountered a lot of people in the industry who worked their way up, you know, right. whether they started as a dishwasher or prep cook, you know, and they always kind of had a superiority attitude towards us because we went to culinary school. Right. You know? Yeah, I can see that. And it was annoying because I'm like, why Why not let us learn from each other, you know? Sure. Mm-hmm. I can tell you my side of how I learned things. You can tell me your side of learning things, you know? I had a job before I we went to culinary school for, it was only for nine months, but there were a lot of things I picked up from those people. Yeah. And they were all super welcoming. They were all super um, enthusiastic about telling me how to do stuff or how they do stuff or why they do stuff, you know? And I've always taken that with me because I always felt like I always choose jobs. Luckily, you know, knock on wood, where... I encounter people who want to learn, but also help to like to help other people learn. Mm-hmm. So, so after culinary school, where did you go? Uh, I went to Scottsdale Community College. Okay. And then at the same time, or you mean directly after culinary school? Or whatever. Like, whatever. <laughs> directly after culinary school, I was working at Christopher's on Twenty Fourth Campbell. Okay. So I was there for a year and a half. Okay. Um, 
and then I went back to Barbados for a little bit, and then I came back and went to yeah, you went back community college, yeah. And then Chapo, did you go to La Porte en Bleu as well? I went there when it was Scottsdale Conroe oh, Institute, okay. and then towards the end of my cycle, that's when it got bought up by the Cordon Bleu. And that was what was your path after you graduated? After that, I went to um, different point of view and worked with Ivan Flowers for, okay. um, gosh, almost like six years, actually five years, okay. and worked my way up from you know line cook to his chef de cuisine, and then we went up to La Berge up in Sedona, where I was his chef de cuisine up there, and that's the person I learned the most from was him. So okay. he, he was also a teacher as well. Oh, really? Yeah, for a couple of years, but he was in the industry for a long time. But just a great person, especially, you know, just to learn from. It was insane. Yeah. I mean, it was very tough, but it was very good for me. What are we doing now besides Atlas? Yeah, oh, actually, that's what I was going to ask you, because yeah. you have um, kind of your pop-up restaurant. Oh, uh, yeah, our underground supper club, um, Play and Apron. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Um, shameless plug. Uh, no, please do. Uh, yeah, um, it was a venture I started with uh, two friends, uh, one a sommelier, the other one a pastry chef. Um, we all worked together at a job, and we had a genuine, genuine bond and friendship, and we liked working together. So once we were not working together, you know, I kind of had the idea. It was like, hey, would you guys be interested in doing, you know, like a supper club? They're like, what do you mean? Like, explain what I thought it was, you know. And they were totally on board. So we've been doing it since last October. We try to do it once a month, but obviously schedules get in the way a lot of the times. Um, so it's usually once or yeah, once every other month right now. But uh, we've been doing a lot of private events lately. Awesome. So yeah, the last one we did was close. It was a complete private event. We're doing another one in end of September that's for a wine group. So yeah, it's been fun because you know it's a it's as much as I love my both my jobs. I like it's nice to have that outlet where mm-hmm. I can do my food. Yeah. And is that always at the same location? Or uh, it, it it varies. So essentially, what we try to do is to just go to someone's house and put on a good meal mm-hmm. for them. You know, we usually do three or four courses. Um, and is a intermezzo. Um, so it's been most of the time it's been closed to the public. We've been doing private events at right. someone's house. But when we did it before, we usually did it at one of our houses. I know, I'm so excited to go. Sarah and I were going to go, and then it was, like, right before I was going to have a baby. Yeah, hopefully this fall, you know, like, if, you know, the stars align, we'll be able to get back on our schedule of doing it once a month. Um, unfortunately, our pastry chef is leaving. He's uh, moving to Seattle. But definitely probably use that as an opportunity to have, like, a guest chef spot. Yeah. At the dinner every month. That would be cool. Also take a little bit of load off myself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so if people follow you on Facebook or, yeah. like, your pages on Facebook, then they'll Facebook be able to Instagram, see yeah. when your next event is coming yeah. up. We try our best to put up, you know, post it about two weeks before the event. Um, seating is, is limited, so we usually do anywhere from 10 to 15 people per event, depending on the space, really. Um and the labor we can get to help us out with it. Right. Because it's really just the three of us. <laughs> <laughs> so all your courses are paired with wine? Uh, yeah, or beer. Uh, last year we did, when we started, we did um, the first two were wine dinners, and then the third one was a beer dinner. So that one was really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. And then the last one we did, we actually did, um, it was for a family event. They were celebrating, like, two birthdays and uh, a graduation from eighth grade, I believe it was. So they wanted like the whole shebang. So we had like cocktail hour, we had cheese boards out, 
and all that kind of stuff. And then they sat down and had a three-course family meal and then finished off with um, the cakes and stuff we made for them for dessert. So they were super happy and ecstatic about everything. And it was a fun event to interact because the the host of the event, they like food, they like wine, they travel a lot. The, the, um, the, the male host, he was, uh, he's from New York. Um, Italian background, so it was awesome. It was like, you know, talking to one of my uncles, you know. Yeah. He was in the kitchen asking us questions, asking anyone if they needed wine or beer. He was like, there's beer in the garage fridge, help your guys' selves, you know. He was like, tequila, anything? <laughs> I'm trying to work, but yeah. But definitely, like, people have been very welcoming to just the whole concept because they're like, you know, we like how laid back you guys are, how friendly you are, you know, you come interact with the guests. And if there's anything, you know, I say about some of my fellow chefs is, like, they don't like to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, sometimes you have to, yeah. you know? <laughs> so I always go out after each course and explain what it is, you know, and field questions from the table, you know. And then at the end of the meal, we all go out and sit and have a glass of wine or whatever with them and just ask them about the meal, what they like, what they didn't like, you know, and just kind of get that, that kind of feedback. But also have just kind of a social social dinner party setting instead of being very formal and you know where you're a service staff and you just eat and go home you know? right yeah i love that yeah it's nice to have that interaction i think yeah sometimes and you meet a lot of cool people that way and, and, and sure. we've booked a lot of events from going out and talking to people afterwards and they've been like we really like this really enjoyed it and want to do something so, that's cool yeah and how long have you been doing that now uh almost a year we started last october okay yeah and so you guys are just about to be coming back from your summer hiatus. What have you been doing over the summer or over your... I have been working. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm about to go on vacation. I'm on break from school and um, work. Yeah, so I'm about to go uh, visit a family back in Barbados on Tuesday. Um, hopefully they don't hear this before that because we're surprising my parents. They don't know I'm coming. <laughs> But yeah, other than that, I've been working, you know, just trying to enjoy my summer, you know, spend a lot of time with my friends, because between going to school full-time and working two jobs, it, you yeah, don't have much busy. of a social life. Busy guy. You know? <laughs> um, so, yeah. Too funny. Chef? What have you been doing? <laughs> oh, I'm just been relaxing all over the place. Traveling. Uh, but I switched it up this time on this summer. I actually wrote the menu for this upcoming season early right afterwards because you're still in that niche right uh, right before shutting or right after shutting down and that way i had all you know kind of all summer just kind of tweak it here and there and especially with traveling you kind of go to like a different restaurant and see like a different style plating or a different style of you know a different ingredient use so i'll just kind of do it early now that way of you know all basically all month just to kind of tweak out whatever we need to tweak but other than that just traveled to up to british columbia went to like vancouver whistler Victoria, and then back, came back down through Seattle, and went to California this uh, summer as well. So, we just got to spend some time with the little one as well. So, nice. it was a good summer for sure. And got married. Yeah, well, I got married. We went on a honeymoon. Oh, okay. Yeah. But yeah, I got married in February. But okay, we finally had since we do shut down during the summer. That's we found the perfect time to uh, take our honeymoon. So yeah, and get out of the get out of the weather. get out of the heat. This week has been pretty nice. So I know it's been humid. But I'm from an island. (laughs) (laughs) It's preparing for my trip. That's how I look at it. (laughs) So you're kind of known for doing interesting things with different ingredients and beautiful plating. Where, how did you kind of go in that direction? Or where did you, when did you start? Uh, I think it was definitely probably with Ivan Flowers. I mean, he definitely focused, you know, quite a bit on presentation. 
Um, and then as you go through, you know, from a kitchen to a kitchen, you kind of develop your own style or your own identity with food. And <clears throat> I don't know, I just kind of really stick with, you know, you know, even though it's got to, obviously, this our job to make it taste good, but, right. you know, making it present well to the guests. I mean, everyone eats with their eyes first. And it's just, that's what brings the art in the culinary, else we'd be just be making food. Um, so to make it truly an art that touches all five senses, you have to make it present well as, you know, visually. And uh, as far as our food goes, uh, we try to keep it more, I mean, it's very simplistic, uh, but just kind of complex where it kind of, you know, try to balance out bitter, sweet, sour, salty. You know, there's different uses of, you know, we usually try to pick out like four to five ingredients on the plate, but trying to mimic that one ingredient to like three different components, you know, perhaps just kind of play off textures or, you know, acidic levels or anything, uh, or sweetness levels with, you know, deep roasting or whatever we want to do. Um, but that's just kind of more of the style of the food. And, you know, we try not to mimic, you know, plating styles too much as the course, you know, as the courses go on. So, I mean, it's, that to me is the, the fun part of food, you know, it's not only mm-hmm. creating a menu, but then after it, you know, it comes to life is kind of the neat thing. So, you know, that's where the art is. It's the beauty. Jabari, what do you feel like is one of your number one takeaways since you've started at Atlas? My personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's big. It's big. <laughs> that was a tough pill to swallow. The environment, you know, it's very uh, reminiscent of the way I like to work. Very relaxed, you know, open, open lines of communication, you know, a lot of teamwork goes on. Um, the creative aspect of it, you know, just seeing the way other, peop- other people think um, other than myself or, you know, other places I've worked before. Because a lot of times where he would show me how he comes up with a dish, and I was like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. I usually look for mm-hmm. this, this, and this. So, I think that aspect of it is what I like the most. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just going to end with a few quick fire questions. Go. So favorite hangover food? Breakfast burrito, chorizo, with potato. <laughs> I'd almost have to agree with that. <laughs> or anything with eggs. I, I am a, have an egg obsession with and Put on some cheese and toast and sriracha. And it's literally good. what he eats over. <laughs> <laughs> um, best meal in Phoenix for under $10. Chocolate shoe one. Is that in? Is that near downtown Phoenix? Uh, ish is off of uh, McDowell 19th. and like 18th Street. Yeah, yeah. yeah just past the 51. I've never been there, but you need to go. It's yeah, so that's pretty good. good. Tacos, she was got it. Yeah. Butter or olive oil? Butter. Cake or yeast donuts? Yeast. yeast. Cake donuts are gross. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> they're dry. They're always dry. Both of donuts. I have the best donuts in town. <laughs> Most overrated and underrated ingredient? Overrated for me is white truffle oil. To me, yeah. it's saffron. I thought you were going to say foie after. No. I, I respect foie for what it is. Yeah. Like white, white, white truffle oil, I think it's used way too heavily. It, it can be used sparingly, but most places just overdo it. Yeah. Under... That's a hard one. Yeah. Can we skip that one? No. <laughs> Salt. That's my answer. Salt. That's a, a good lot one. of places. I would say any type of food. acid. You know, people don't balance out acids well enough, I, I believe. I feel you. Some kind of vinegar, whether it's red wine vinegar or lemon juice or something simple as that. Yeah. Okay, and final question. What's one quick tip you'd give to someone who is just learning how to cook? Patience. 
research. Okay, well, thank you guys thank for you. joining me. This was fun. <laughs> thank was. you. We'll have to do it again, and I hope you guys... I would love to. Yeah, I hope you guys both come back here to teach a class or... For sure. Hang out with us. And so Jabari, we can find you at Atlas, and then also Plate and Apron Supper Club. Yep, yep. And Chefo, we can find you at Atlas and teaching at the Cordon Blue. That's it. That's right. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Production hosted by Chef Pascal Dionne, Chef Lou Swartz, and Danielle Sanders. Produced by Danielle Sanders.